Hello and welcome to the Anita Poor Show, where I'm here to help you master Bitcoin, realize its implications for the world and gain self-sovereignty and freedom. I'm your host, Anita Posch, happy to be with you again. This is episode 168, and today I'm joined by Ray Youssef, the CEO of Paxful, the peer-to-peer -peer exchange which recently removed Ethereum from their platform. And he is the co-founder of Build with Bitcoin. This interview took place at the first African Bitcoin-only conference in Accra, Ghana, at the beginning of December 2022. A short disclosure from my side, Paxful sponsored my work in the last three months of 2022. As Mark Mariah writes in an article about Yusuf in the Bitcoin magazine, I quote, Yusuf is the only person you will ever meet who went into New Orleans shortly after Hurricane Katrina struck and who flew into Egypt on an empty plane while the Arab Spring was becoming very dangerous and who went into Africa already eight years ago to better understand how the people from that continent might use Bitcoin as a solution for their economic problems. Ray was a guest on my show already in May 2020. You can listen in to hear his story at anita.link slash 59. That's anita.link slash 59. Paxful has been doing a lot of educational work in several African countries. The Built with Bitcoin Foundation is a humanitarian organization devoted to creating equitable opportunity by providing clean water, access to quality education, sustainable farming and humanitarian support, all powered by Bitcoin. Today we are talking about building local communities, how to foster sustainable education, how the lives of people have been changed to the better and about the role Bitcoin is playing. The Anita Po Show is hosted on BTC Podcasting, a Bitcoin for Fairness project, where you can host your podcast for free and at the same time earn Bitcoin. Prior solutions required that the host is running her own lightning node, which is no easy task. At BTC Podcasting, we are working together with Albi to make earning Bitcoin accessible for anyone. On top of that, the open source platform enables hosts like me to add chapters and images to the episodes. If you use a podcast app like Breeze from breeze.technology, you can see the associated images and links and send some sats to me. Last but not least, I want to say thank you very much to you, my dear listener, and to all the donors who have supported my work with Bitcoin for Fairness in 2022. This is the first episode of 2023. We are having big plans for Bitcoin for Fairness in this year. We will build online courses and a community where people, especially also human rights activists, can learn how to use Bitcoin in a private manner. Yeah, that's it. So here we go with the interview. Hello, Ray. Hello, Anita. Thanks so much for coming to the Anita Posho again, the second time we did, yeah, we did it three years ago. Um, for the listeners, it's, um, you can find this episode at anita.link slash 59. So, hello was, Ray. Hello sister, it was my honor to be on your show the first time 
And I think you and your viewers will find that I have evolved significantly since then. Have you? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> we will hear about that in the next minutes. <laughs> so please, for all that don't know you yet, please introduce yourself. Um, what are you doing now? And then maybe you can get a little bit into the fact why you came up to do something like Paxful. Yeah, so my name is Ray Youssef. I'm currently the CEO and founder of Paxful. Paxful is a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace of about 11.6 million users. We're bootstrapped, we, and uh, Africa is our biggest market. Nigeria is number one, America number two, India three, and Ghana, where we're at right now, number four. Really? And followed up by South Africa, Kenya, a lot Cameroon coming up, and all over the world. In fact, we specialize in what I like to call the global south, meaning Africa, Southeast Asia, the subcontinent of India, Latin America. And the reason we do that is, well, there's two reasons. One, I believe the Global South is the future. I was born in Africa. I was born in Egypt to parents. And to, we, be, we moved to New York when I was two years old. You know, typical immigrant family, American dream. There was no opportunity back home. And I really believe in a world where people don't have to leave home find opportunity, because there can be opportunity everywhere. The Global South has 80% of the world's population, but only 20% of the wealth, and that wealth is concentrated in the hands of very, very few, even relative to the concentration in the West. And the question is, why is that? You know, if you look at a situation like Nigeria, the Naira was, one Naira was equal to more than a dollar back in the 80s, and now it's approaching a thousand to one. What happened? Did Nigerians just stop working? No, there's two, over 200 million of them and they're working harder than ever. So what's going on? And the more I searched for that answer, the more I got to the root of all the problems in the world. And it's something I call economic apartheid. It's the biggest problem in the world. And it's a pretty strong label. When I first started using it, my PR team was like, no, that's a little too hot and controversial. But that's exactly what it is. And we, it's time we started calling it out like it is. We have to be on the offensive about this because there's no reason why six billion people have to live in poverty. And there's no reason why people in the West have to live in the state they're at either. They can be doing a hell of a lot better. Everyone can be doing better if we just unlock the potential of all of these unemployed youth in the global South. So the question is, why don't we? Why don't they have jobs? And the reason is, because the money is not flowing. The greatest opp creative opportunity of any government, as Abraham Lincoln said, is the issuance of money. And all that's required for prosperity is that the amount of, of currency in circulation is equal to the potential work that can be done. Whenever that balance is kept, as in the 13 colonies of America, there is prosperity and abundance. Even if they're colonists just getting off a ship and cutting down trees to make houses, they lived a better life than an aristocrat in France. So the question is then, okay, why don't these global south economies start putting their people to work? And the answer is they can't, because if they do that, they will be punished. They will get a call from someone at BIS or the IMF, and they will say, hey, slow down there, son. You can't make your own money put your people to work. You have to borrow our money at interest. These are gangsters imposing their will on these people, artificially throttling their economies. And if they don't listen, all the whole country gets poor overnight, because these guys control price discovery with our paper, artificial paper shorts, contracts they can put on the forex every morning they can artificially suppress gold silver and whole economies whole currencies like the naira this is the power that they have and finally we have a tool right now it's called bitcoin 
that allows us to fight back, that allows us to put these youth to work building an alternative economy, a circular economies, which will eventually get us to the point where we have alternative price discovery, where the street price as determined by real trades, by real people on the ground in real use cases, will supersede in importance the rubbish that's coming out of these artificially controlled forex markets. That is the ultimate struggle, sister. It's taken me a while to figure this out. I've had quite the journey. I've been through revolution in Egypt. I came to a revolution in Zuccotti Park, Occupy Wall Street, and it just got me thinking about what money actually is. And that's honestly the best gift that Bitcoin gave me. It got me asking that question. And the answer is quite simple. Money is work, human work. Money exists, all it is is just human work to transcend time and space, and then you get a currency, right? It's a great invention. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, it's a great thing. And if there's free trade, if people are allowed to trade with each other, then you get something amazing, you get prosperity and wealth. That's the magic of being human, that just a few humans working generally can create tremendous wealth. They've denied us that. I think you're talking about it unlocks abundance. You, mm -hmm. you believe in abundance, I think, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I believe, I'm pro-human. I don't believe we're just hairless primates on a little speck of dust flying through the universe at some unfathomable speed and that we're cursed to short brutish lives of poverty and despair. I reject that completely. I believe that humans are blessed creatures and great creations and our default state is abundance and prosperity if we're just left alone with an honest system of money. Yeah, and if we give everyone the same chances, what we are not doing. I just recently wrote an article about how Bitcoin enforces seven of the 30 human rights from the UN Charter of Human Rights. And one of those is all men, or all human beings, of course, are equal. And, but with all these organizations you were talking about, the BIS, the FATF, it's financial exclusion, and I wrote, I think it's willful financial exclusion. That's not a, an accident. Absolutely. Know? And it's also what I learned here when I was in Zambia and Zimbabwe in the recent months. I never in Europe thought about um, the decolonization of the African continent. But here, of course, that's a topic, and I think it's an important topic, and I think Bitcoin can play a big role in that. Mm. Although there are lots of people in the North who tell me, I'm colonizing people here with Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the vanity and temerity of these people to make these kinds of accusations. So this term, financial exclusion, you're right, it has been systemic, right? But what we're dealing with now is something several orders of magnitude greater than just financial exclusion like the financial exclusion happened honestly like 70 80 years ago but since then it has metastasized where they haven't just built a little wall for the golden circle of western finance and left everyone out they've even put barriers around each country right look at Af look at africa it's a perfect example you've got four, 54 countries 42 currencies 200 payment, 2,000 payment systems, only a fraction of them can actually talk to each other. Mm -hmm. If you're in Nigeria and you want to send money to Cameroon, it's nearly impossible. If you're okay with Malawi and trying to send money to South Africa, it's nearly impossible. They haven't just excluded these people from trading with the West. They've put up barriers around them as well. This is metastasizing something far worse than just financial exclusion, which is why I use the term economic apartheid, because 
it's segregation on the worst level imaginable. Like it has gone orders of magnitude worse. The rot is absolutely astronomical right now. And the worst part is most people don't even realize it. It is. Right. You only realize it when you come here and you talk to the people. And it's even like you just said you can't send money from one African country to the other. I said that also in Zimbabwe and my, my, the, the, the person I met with, he then said, yeah, you can't even send it in Zimbabwe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so When they really want to destroy a country, even they destroy it internally within the actual state itself. Absolutely. And they are basically like the, the traditional money system is their way to rip all the, the, the people of the country off. Like they loot the money by printing the worthless and getting worthless, less, less um, uh, traditional or, or national currency, siphoning up the, off the US dollars. And yeah, so they, the, the rich get always richer and like the rich dictators um, and the poor poorer, right? Exactly. It's, it's like a triple tax of evil on the people. There's an inflation, which makes the whole country poorer. They use their corporations here to start buying up and acquiring all of their assets. So there's even less assets for the people to acquire. And then there's other like, ways to they inflict pain as well, which they, they isolate the economy even within its own region, right? Mm -hmm. Look at Nigeria. Look at Egypt, where I'm from. It's a complete prison for money. So there's like at least three levels of pain and a whole capillary system that like just branches out to inflict even more pain and trap people in ways that are just unimaginable to us. A great example I use is, imagine if you couldn't send money from New York to New Jersey, if there were two different currencies, broken banking systems, and all these other rules and compliance regulations where your money got trapped. How advanced would the United States be? <laughs> yeah. And that's what Africans have been dealing with for the past 80 years. And it's only getting worse. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Mm -hmm. And it's honestly a wonder these people aren't extinct. Absolutely. I always wonder how people in Zimbabwe still survive in that circumstances where everything is circulating in your head around money because how do you get through the next day? The first question in the morning is what's the rate? How many dollars do I get uh, or, or for my Zimbabwe dollar? Or what can I buy for my Zimbabwe dollar anymore? Yeah. Exactly. It's the fragmentation of the price discovery within the markets. In Venezuela, there's 13 different prices. Absolutely. That's the next thing. Like, it's a, a silly example, but we were searching for toilet paper. Mm. And you have two shops, which are like 5K from each other. And in the one shop, it costs $20 in the next 10 <laughs> the, where's the price finding mechanism? It's gone. It's completely. Uh, exactly. say, it's not functioning. It, it, the apartheid isn't even just on the national level anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's now regional, citywide, neighborhoodwide. They can just further fragment it. Soon it'll be household per household, like literally. <laughs> and then you also get added on top the CBDCs. Oh my god. Then goodness. they know how much you have. <laughs> that is their wet dream. I mean. It opens <laughs> for that exactly for the bad guys. It literally is like having an open circulatory system updating in real time of where all the money is flowing, and they can turn on, turn off mm -hmm. anyone's access. They can say, "Oh, you were talking to this guy. We don't like that guy, so we're going to ban your whole cluster." And then what do you do? Now you're forced to live in the black market, which is the wild west, and now you're a criminal. Yeah, exactly. And uh, just as an example also, because what you said, they can turn on, off. What they also can do is they can tax you directly then. Uh, so they don't even ask anymore. Um, and um, just as an example, also Zimbabwe again, uh, with 
all digital transactions are automatically taxed 2%, and that was two years ago, now it's 4%. <laughs> and you can't do anything against it. And it, um, it's for rich and poor the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, all those conspiracy theories about the mark of the beast have come true. <laughs> People need to shop for some more conspiracy theories right now, because yeah. it's in our face. Is it, we're in a very special time in history, honestly, where these, you know, these small casts of dominant men that rule the world, the world has always been run by these small casts of dominant men. That's what I call them, as a, as, SCDCs, whatever you call them. I, just the term that I use <laughs> okay. to describe these bad guys, right? Uh -huh. We're at a very special point in history where they are trying to shift us from this soft tyranny that is guys and democracy and freedom and all that into a system of hard tyranny where escape won't just be impossible, it will be unthinkable. This is the switch they're trying to pull right now. COVID was the first foray into that, but there'll be many more, but they're getting quite vain right now. So it's, everyone has to resist this with all possible measure right now and buy time for ourselves and our children. Like it's time for us to go on the offense and there's no better tool than Bitcoin and free trade. People have to internalize that message. If you want to do something good for the world, the peaceful revolution is here. It's called Bitcoin. And that's a very important narrative. Because they're going to try to shift this and make it all these Bitcoin people are, are anarchists and they're declaring war against the government. Absolutely not. We are all about peace. I name mine Puck me Paxful. It means peace in Latin. But if we're all rich, if we're all wealthy, if we have everything we need, what reason is there for anyone to fight anyone else? This is a revolution, an evolution of peace. Mm -hmm. So now that you and your team have grown Paxful to almost 12 million uh, users, mm. um, I think three years ago I asked you there was something going on like saying that 30% uh, of all Nigerians have been using Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies already. Can you uh, uh, confirm that number or what, what, what is in your uh, experience? How many people are really using it? In I think it's in Nigeria, it's probably less than 1%. But it's just the quality of those 1% is beyond imagining, right? So it seems like 30%, but no, it's less than 1%. Really? We have tremendous room to grow just in Nigeria alone. It's our biggest market, and we haven't even scratched the surface of it. I and mean, last time... Uh, Last time, before last time I was in Nigeria, this young lady, Rebecca, she came out of the kitchen. She was still wearing her apron at the hotel where I was staring at. She saw that I had Bitcoin on my cap. And she came out and she said, I have 20,000 Naira. I've been saving this up. Teach me about Bitcoin, right? And there's so much of that there. People are just starting to learn. It's just the quality of those few Nigerians that are trading in arbitrage is so immense and they move so much around that it seems tremendous. I mean, a great example is You know, 2020, the remittance in Nigeria was 2.5 million at the beginning of the year. And by the end of the year, this is during COVID, it was 55 million. Now, COVID had something to do with that. But the Nigerians began to discover, wait a minute, I can send money home with Bitcoin. And I can actually make a profit, and it's instant. And they were using Paxful to that. They were using all these other services. They just figured out a way to do it. And once the government saw that, like, what happened to all this FX? Nigeria would have already been a failed state if it wasn't for all the remittances coming in from the diaspora. So that freaked them out. And that's when they put in those draconian measures to try to stop this. And what happened? Peer-to-peer -peer volume exploded. You can't stop an army of mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. 
And I always say, or I think that uh, as soon as someone uh, from the region has unlocked that potential by using it the first time and seeing how superior, superior it is to other forms of sending money or using money digitally, um, then you never get back, go back. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you might use rather a stable coin because you don't want the volatility of Bitcoin. Um, I don't know how. How do you? Does Paxful also enable people to trade stable coins or only Bitcoin? Yes, we know we support Tether and USDC. But what's really interesting about Nigeria is the Nigerians just prefer Bitcoin really? <laughs> over stable coins. Yeah, wow. and it's because we supported Bitcoin for so long. They just want to use Bitcoin now over anything else. It's amazing. You know, stable coin volume is growing, but still predominantly it's Bitcoin. Nigerians love Bitcoin. Oh, that's interesting because in Zimbabwe I met with a trader who said it's like 90% USDT and 10% Bitcoin. Yeah. And the same thing in Argentina. That's the same volume. Everywhere in the world it's like that. But in Nigeria. <laughs> Nigeria is love Bitcoin. Okay, I need to visit Nigeria now. Oh, yeah. Come with me, <laughs> sister. You'll love it. <laughs> You'll love it. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Built uh, with Bitcoin Foundation and the educational work or initiatives you're doing um, in African countries. Um, can you explain to us what the Built with Bitcoin Foundation is and yeah, how uh, I think you're the co-founder. Founder, yeah. Oh, co-founder. Co-founder. Co co yeah. yeah. And and how did it um, come into reality? The Bitcoin Foundation. Yeah, well, officially it started five years ago when me and Yusuf Nasari, you know, I told him my dream. I want to build a hundred schools and a school for gifted children. And he said, okay, let's make it happen because he was already building orphanages through his organization. It was called Zamzam Water. And we got together and made this happen. We built 12 schools and 11 wells so far all around the world, most in Africa. So we're getting close to our mission. Uh, I funded it purely for myself in the beginning, but now we've gone over 1.2 million in donations, and 95% of that goes to actually helping the people on the ground, mm -hmm. which is the inverse opposite of every other NGO exactly, yeah. out there. But you know, this real story we built with Bitcoin started started right after Hurricane Katrina when I went to New Orleans mm -hmm. just by myself. Uh, I wanted to help any way I could over there, and uh, it was quite an adventure. It was three weeks, but at the end of it all, we managed to build the first, rebuild the first school that was to open in the entire of New Orleans. It was the New Orleans Cathedral Academy. It was a Catholic school run by these five Dominican nuns. And these nuns were absolute heroes. You know, when I first got there, the first day the city was actually opened back up. No one was there except the military. But I went to FEMA, I went to the military, I went to the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, and no one knew anything. But it was these five nuns that knew where everything was, that knew we were helping people. And because we managed to open up that first school, the police and the fire department could come back into the city. And that was actually the emergence of the city. It was just because of that one act with these five nuns. And it just showed me the power of, you know, focusing your energies in the right place. You know, giving back in a way that is actually targeted, tactical, and make a real difference with the right people. And that's when it really inspired me to do this. You know, people have asked me, how were you, like, how did you manage to convince your investors to build schools and wells with company money? Well, I didn't have any investors. Thankfully, it was bootstrapped, so I took the risk. And it's a great move because two reasons. One, it won us the trust of the people. We led with giving. You know, we didn't, I didn't just do this when I right, were, you know, billionaires or whatever. From day one, we started doing this. 
And two, it brought us immense talent, you know, people that were mission-driven, that wanted to join us because it wasn't about the money. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in making a real difference. So it's a huge win. And my real mission with Built With Bitcoin is to really show the corporate world that doing the right thing can be profitable. Yeah. And then they can all join. I would love that. Because basically you, you, you recruited this maybe the, the wrong word, but as you just said, uh, you, you educated your own uh, talent, basically, yeah? Exactly. And, and build the building of trust by being on the ground. I see how important that is in my own work with Bitcoin for Fairness, because there are so many scams going on. Um, so that basically everybody who I'm telling about Bitcoin, the first question is, but is it legit? Is it not a scam? Everyone has been scammed in one way or the exactly. other. And so I think it's so important to show your face and to what yes. you, I believe, also do to just help the communities to get together. And I, I'm doing it that way. As soon as they have built their own community, I'm out because it's their thing. It's not okay. mine. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm only there to, to, to help initially mm -hmm. um, and to, to share my knowledge about self-custody and privacy and all these things. And um, I guess it's the same in your communities. Huh? Absolutely. There's a big difference between being a colonizer and planting a seed. Exactly. We are here to plant the seed. And, and honestly, honestly, in a lot of ways, the seed is already there because people are looking for a solution to a problem. And they already know what the solution is, but they just need a jump start. And we come there and we just pour a little water and then they take over. Like Af Africans, all people in the global south, they don't need aid. They don't need a handout. They just need to be shown, hey, like this is the way we can just move it along a little bit faster. These are the best practices. And then they just take it and run with it. And then they come back and show us how to do it better. Excuse and then you. that's where the learning goes full circle. And then yeah. we know how to do it better the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that people here have to build their own solutions because they are the ones who know their problems the best. How do I know the problems of people here? I don't. Exactly. And like... Honestly, people in the Global South have these amazing institutions, financial um, systems that have existed for thousands of years. For example, these money rotation clubs where 10 women will gather in a village and they'll share 100 bucks between them and then one woman will get the entire amount that month and the next month it'll rotate over. In Nigeria, they call it Isusu. In Kenya, they call it Chama. In the Philippines, they call it Palawagan. So the Global South has had these systems for millennia. Actually, they don't need to be banked. Because they do that for thousands or hundreds of years without mm -hmm. banks, you know? Exactly. Exactly. The banks just don't make sense here. And if you look at what the telcos have done here, starting with Safaricon and M-Pesa, that's the model that works. You extend communication to people. And honestly, sending a payment should be just the same thing as sending a Hello Kitty gift, right? There's no difference. You're just attaching some value. The Africans have already leapfrogged over banks in that sense. It isn't just landlines they leapfrogged over. They already leapfrogged over banks. Now they just need a way to jump across borders, across this, these walls that this financial economic apartheid system has set up. And Bitcoin helps them do that. And once they realize that, you see their eyes light up. Was, you know, this, people ask me all the time, oh, what do you think about regulation? It's horrible. Like, uh, hold on a second. The regulation honestly has a place to prevent all these scammers. The biggest, the biggest danger we have is not regulation. It's scammers, man. 
they're the ones that take us one step back every time we move two steps forward. And we're sitting there picking up the pieces. It's the scammers that we have to get rid of. And when I went and gave this campus tour in 2019 in Kenya and South Africa, every time I mentioned Bitcoin, everyone's eyes were like, they gave me this look, you know, like, what? There's another scammer here coming to... No. But once I told them, hey, this is, I'm not asking for your money here. This is not an investment you're making to buy my coin or anything else or even just Bitcoin. You can use this as a means of exchange to do things you otherwise could not do. And then they want to hear more. Then they're interested. And that's why Paxwell has 11.6 million users. Because it's preaching. It's, 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 it's not really preaching anything, but... It all, for me, it feels like that because this is a real solution to people's problems, right? It's not invest in something and I'm, I'm going to give you a return. It's just, hey, this is the way you can set up your own lemonade stand. It's really preaching entrepreneurship in a way. And everyone can be an entrepreneur. It's peer-to-peer, -peer, right? That's how, this, that's how this entire movement started, peer-to-peer -peer financial cash. The solution has been the first words in the Bitcoin white paper. It's just humans helping humans. Exactly. That's exactly. What's so unnatural about that? Yeah. <laughs> and basically, regulation uh, will just keep us from doing that and uh, will enable them basically to control us more and more. Um, and that's the, the, the danger I see now also with that, again, this bust like of FTX and the whole fraud and everything. They will come in like we need to regulate cryptocurrency and Bitcoin because they don't understand that what, what these frauds are, are centralized companies. These are people who defraud others. I mean, exactly. that's a crime already. Yeah. Exactly. Well, a lot of them, a lot of these regulators are good people just trying to figure things out, but at the core, they're not good people. And they, are, they know exactly what's going on. And they're just using that as an excuse to put down draconian legislation to choke things out. And, you know, I can give you some insight about my experience as a CEO of an American company trying to do compliance in the global south. The truth is, Anita, that an American company can never serve 100%. Absolutely not. And how does it manifest? All right, we had to pull out of Venezuela and Russia because mm -hmm. of all these external pressures. But let's forget that for a moment. <clears throat> Little things like... Every time we have to file a suspicious activity report for things that honestly are not really suspicious, but we have to file it anyway, well, we have to lock a, a user's funds until the regulator gets back to us and says, hey, you can let those funds go. Yeah, this is a day-to-day -day practice. SARS, suspicious activity reports. And when you file a SAR, you have to lock funds until the American regulator gets back to you and says, okay, this is all right. And they'll take their sweet time. It could be 18 months. It could be years. Why should a Nigerian doing business with a Cameroonian have to be subjected to American compliance laws that have no idea how they do business and wait on that regulator's sweet time to get back and like, that is the day-to-day. -day. That's just one example. KYC is another. You want us to implement KYC for the world? Okay, fine, but what if that person doesn't have an ID? Okay, what if they do have an ID? But hey, 99.9% .9 of the people in Africa don't have passports. They have these little paper voter registration ID cards. And all these KYC providers around can't actually read those. So all those people are excluded. So the system, like exclusion is built into the system. And as an American CEO, you cannot override compliance, no matter how nonsensical it is. Those are just two examples of day-to-day -day practices in compliance that makes an American company really unable to serve the global south. But isn't it also that these regulations are pushed 
upon all the countries here as well. Exactly. So even if you found a company here in one of these countries, you have the same regulations? No, America is on a different level compared okay. to everyone else. Okay. Uh, Uncle Sam is a special, <laughs> is a special being there. Like, like the regulators here, we're actually meeting the regulators here. We met the regulators in Nigeria. We met the you know security people here in Ghana. They're very nice. They're like, every time we meet them, we're like, hey, you're the first people to actually come meet us from this industry, right? And they're just learning. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in imposing draconian measures to crush the global south. No, but they hear reports every single day. Oh, I got scammed. Oh, this, that, like, and they want to take action, but they don't know how to start. So we actually have a chance here to do it right and to guide them, but just with simple dialogue and education both ways into innovation-friendly regulation, mm -hmm. which is why I say, hey, like, let's not just take the sword to regulation out front. Yes, in the West, it's, it's beyond hope, <laughs> but here in the Global South, we have a chance to start off on the right foot. Absolutely. That's also what I always say. We have the chance to, to start the right, on the right foot and with the majority of uh, usage peer-to-peer. -peer exactly. Without KYC. Because, and, with, and also uh, that protects the privacy of the people here, yeah. which have none at all, actually, with everyone being on WhatsApp and Facebook. And, and you know what's interesting, too, is like a, a lot of the people here, they've been invisible for so long They would love to KYC. Like, they have nothing to hide. The business is honest. They're like, yeah, take my ID, but we, oh, we can't process it. Because our systems aren't set up to do that. So yeah. these people, like, in the global, they're not interested in, in being anonymous and hiding. They're doing legitimate business. You want their kid, they're happy to give it to you, but we can't process it. On Jumio, on Fido, NetMind, all they can't do it. We have to sign these local processes here that can do it, and there's not many of them. So that's the thing people have to understand. It's not some shadowy black market here. These people want to be in the light. They'll happily tell you who they are. If you want to come to their place and have tea, here's your proof of address, come over. <laughs> Absolutely, but how is that for you then when you hear how FTX has basically screwed the regulators? I mean, you have all these draconian yeah. regulations, but then uh, how can some, a thing like that happen? FTX, well, this is like the scam of the century, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it... it it boils my blood that these people are just walking free. Like one of these founders is walking around in Manhattan in Soho ordering artesian coffee in the middle and of losing. And giving interviews still. So. <laughs> yeah, giving interviews. They're media darlings. I'm like, my goodness, this person literally stole a billion dollars of user funds and gave it to these politicians. This was a massive money laundering operation for geopolitical nonsense from Ukraine or whatever. Like, <coughs> and, and they're just protecting this person. You know, everyone likes to say Africa is full of corruption, but my God, look at the corruption in the West. Yeah. It's just on a different level. It's like the major leagues. Yeah. And we're sitting here watching this in real time, and it's horrible, but honestly, I think it's a blessing in disguise because it's, it's red-pilling a lot of people. Mm. It's making a lot of people understand that there is no way to salvage this system. You mm. must opt out and start building an alternative system now. And great news, we have the tech, we have the community, a strong community, and people have already started doing this. You're not just walking into an empty room here. This is a great place. And I mean, you are protected against that because you are a peer-to-peer -peer -peer exchange. You don't hold user funds, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is actually the best way. <laughs> It is the best way, but we have a long, I mean, we have a lot of work to do because Most people in Africa, like, they, they just try to get them to use 2FA, and they're still not. We have to really educate and yeah, use I people. Know. Like, we, 
there's a lot of work to be done there, Anita. Actually, nobody has a password manager, for instance. So 99% of all African websites have been hacked and yeah. the user database leaked, including full emails and passwords. Mm -hmm. And that's why people will just, you know, use their same email password for their email address. And then you're like, we have to, we, ha we have a huge security team devoted to just that. And that's why we're so big on education because it literally saves like life savings. It's, it can change lives, you know, and save lives, literally save lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're also trying to build circular economies in, in the, the education centers or around the education centers in these communities, right? Absolutely. Like just today I met uh, six brothers They came 12 hours, drove 12 hours from all the way from the north tip of Ghana to come see me, right? Wow. And these guys, they were using our affiliate program and just creating whole communities around them. It's beautiful. And this is the things that we want to grow and build upon because it really doesn't take that much. If there's just a simple structure for them to mobilize, they will do it. They're building the communities. We're just watching. We just have built simple incentivization structures and they will go. It's like an army being mobilized, a peaceful one. Absolutely, and I can remember last year I was in El Salvador, you know, um, after uh, Bitcoin became legal tender, and um, you have the, the big thing going on about Bitcoin Beach and in El Sonte and everything, but then we went to a town, I forgot the name now, but there's a Paxful community basically of, of uh, and it's really a community that is using Bitcoin, you know? Absolutely. And uh, I love those guys really, and, and they were uh, working with Paxful, yeah. Absolutely, and you see these communities all over the world. It's, it's very interesting that in every country I've been, all the peer-to-peer -peer traders are usually not in the main city. They're like a little bit out in the suburbs of the second biggest city. I don't know why that is, but it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, and now you're opening a new education center in Ghana, is that right? Yes, ma'am. It's the Bitcoin <laughs> Technology Center, BTC. That's also funny. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> yeah. So we have uh, three goals with this. The curriculum is simple. First, we introduce them to financial education, meaning the simplest question. What is money? Where does it come from? Why is the money system broken? And hey, there's this thing called Bitcoin that is honest money. We tell them why. That's the first thing, right? And then we talk to them about entrepreneurship. The beauty of being able to build something from nothing and help people, creating value. And then third thing is we teach them how to actually become an entrepreneur and build a product. And simple lessons. Here's how to use a computer. Here's how to open up a Bitcoin wallet, and guess what? Here's how to code, right? <laughs> Just a lesson to get you started, right? So those builders that want to really take it to the product level. It is the full curriculum, and it actually models my journey, right? That whole awakening I had after I came back from Egypt and Zuccotti Park, and I was asking these questions, what is money? Where does it come from? Okay, what is this Bitcoin thing? How can I actually use it to build things? I was already an entrepreneur at that time, And that's the glue, right? Once you have the knowledge of the fight that you're actually in, you become aware that it is actually a bottle, you have the entrepreneurship as that glue in the middle, and then you have the skills to actually build something. <coughs> so I already had those last two things. When I got that first thing, I was able to go. And that's what we're going to create. We're going to create a bunch of little rays, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the good parts, not the bad. <laughs> 
Um, and I think you also pay people who are employed for the Bitcoin uh, Technology Center in Bitcoin. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And how do they spend it then? Oh, we're gonna have to see. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's amazing here in Ghana. There's like malls and stalls opening up that are ready to accept Bitcoin. They're really like the people here are really pushing like all the local merchants around. I just heard of, about a lady that owns one of the biggest malls here in Accra and she wants to accept Bitcoin. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's brothers here that are, and sisters here that are really pushing this. Wow. And you might see a little El Salvador <laughs> here in Ghana very soon. And it's, it's interesting, but 70% of our traders here in Ghana are actually from the north of Ghana. Uh -huh. Right? So you're going to see a lot more there. And that's why Kamasi, it's up in the north. That's mm -hmm. where we're going there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, no, Thursday, Thursday, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, adventure, actually, and journey, it is. and it to is, see yeah. the, the, the center. Because, um, yeah, when I was in South Africa in May, uh, visiting Bitcoin Ikasi, I then reported back also to you. And um, the great thing is that you then uh, now sponsored a Paxful Education Center in Bitcoin Ikasi, which is the circular economy uh, in Mossel Bay in South Africa which I believe is one of the most important projects or communities at the moment to show that also people from a township uh, can use Bitcoin and that it makes sense for them in a circular economy. And the great thing is that Pick and Pay uh, in South Africa, in uh, Mossel Bay now also accepts Lightning. So they earn their money in the surf school in Bitcoin Ikasi, they go into the township, they pay their daily goods at the small informal shops and the informal shops go to the pick and pay to restock and pay with lightning. <laughs> Absolutely, it's beautiful. Yeah. And in fact, you see this, like certain towns, even like New York State, have their own little currency there. You'll go to a farmer's market in some places and you have to buy wooden tokens, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how you buy goods there. Yeah. It's perfectly natural, people have been doing this for millennia, but now instead of having to start your own little token, you can jump in this community of 300 million strong that you know already has a massive community, great technology. Wow, what could be better? 300 million? You think 300 million people are using Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies? Yeah, that's the number for cryptocurrencies, yeah. 300 million. But you know that's an erroneous number. It's a lot smaller than that. People actually trading on the ground. I'd say it'd probably be under a million people that are actually actively trading that. You know, Paxos user base, the active user base is around 2.5%. Those are the people of the 11.6 million. So that number sounds low, but it's actually pretty high compared to all these other exchanges, right? Because most of it is just people speculating. They'll both buy their Bitcoin and then use it to get Shiba yeah. Inu and just sit there and wait. That's different. That's not what we're doing, right? So, you know, Paxos is a good product, but it's for a kind of a small niche. It's for arbitrage traders, right? But those arbitrage traders end up bringing in all these people and selling to them. You know, yeah, and they create their own products. Sometimes they'll even start their own business outside of that, which is beautiful. You know, because we're we want more competition to happen. We want more peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces. We want more exchangers. Paxil is like a marketplace for exchanges in a way. That and each every single person can be their own exchange, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it also brings liquidity into the countries because that's a, a problem of many countries yes. uh, that there is no Bitcoin around. Yes, sister. So I'll give you two interesting stories, right? Number one is how we got the first Bitcoins into Africa. So this was like uh, eight years ago. I was homeless in New York and trying to figure out how to do this. How are we going to get Bitcoins into Africa? Now, 
Nigeria is a very hard country to get money out of, right? So how are the Nigerians going to get the Bitcoin if they can't pay for it, right? You know, I was like, okay, maybe cacao beans. That's the second biggest export. Maybe I can get some cacao beans really cheap. Minimum order of cacao beans was $10 million. <laughs> I didn't have $10 million to bring cacao beans to Rotterdam and sell it for whatever. So we needed a hack. And the hack was I showed Nigerians how they could get paid for their gigs using a gift card that any of their family or whoever they were working for could buy in a drugstore in America with cash. They would take that gift card code and sell it to someone in China a gamer that would be very happy to buy it at a discount so they could access content that was beyond the firewall. And it worked. To thanks to the hustle and business acumen of the Nigerian youth, they figured out a way to make $60 million a week flow over that one quarter. And that's what got the first Bitcoins into Africa through Nigeria, and from there it flooded to Ghana, Cameroon, all of Western Africa, and then Kenya. Great. So that was a huge win. Um, I forgot the second thing I was going to tell you. My goodness, my memory's getting The second story about how to oh, get liquidity. Uh, yes, okay, yes, yes. It was, so here's some really interesting examples, right? We, um, I went to Egypt just recently, and crypto is illegal there. Even Bitcoin is illegal there. We managed to meet with the central bank, and they agreed to let us start educating people about it. That was very dear to me. At least it's the start. The Egyptians are quite stubborn. I know I'm Egyptian, especially the <laughs> central bank over there. But the beautiful thing is, is that Bitcoin, like when you talk to these regulators, their biggest fear is that, oh, this Bitcoin thing is going to take FX out of the country. It's going to rob us of our FX. And that's very important because the FX, meaning foreign currency, what they call hard currency, euros or dollars, is the only thing that props up the price of their local currency. So they can't have those reserves going down. But Bitcoin does not take hard currency out of their economy. In fact, it puts their local workforce to work earning Bitcoin, bringing it into the country, which then could be converted into euros or dollars. Hard currency, like the beauty is, and I told this to the Egyptians, I told them, hey, what you have here is a way to put your local population to work bringing in FX. You don't have to send them out of the country anymore. You can put all these unemployed youth to work earning Bitcoin, and you should just say, hey, give us your Bitcoin, we'll give you local money. Then you can take that Bitcoin and turn it into dollars or euros or whatever, and you've increased local churn of your local currency as well. It's a huge win. It is literally like you're bringing in tremendous remittance FX, and these people don't have to leave the country. What could be better? You're putting your people to work. It's a miracle waiting. Like anyone in the global south that really jumps on this, to put their people to work, it's going to be a massive victory. Look at all the Nigerians and Kenyans on Upwork selling their time. They'll be baking Bitcoin. The government can say, hey, give us that Bitcoin and we'll give you shillings or naira or whatever. And right there they've won. They've found a way to bring in FX. Whereas with Western Union, who keeps that FX? It's Western Union. They don't even share it with the government. This is a massive win. The first country that sees this and accepts this deal will be absolutely a game changer. But why do you think would the people like give the Bitcoin to the government or to the state? They would have to be forced to it, right? Because I wouldn't give my Bitcoin. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Some people, like for example, Nigerians, they'll you know get a gift card, sell it for Bitcoin, and they just want to turn that Bitcoin into local money. Yeah. And they'll take that Bitcoin and sell it to someone locally for bank transfer. Mm -hmm. If they could go to the government office and say, okay, here's my Bitcoin, just give me cash, that'd be even easier. They'd do that too. A lot of them want to keep it, of course, and use it so they can do more business. And when they figure that out, that's all they want to do. Then they'll start doing you know, remittances around the, the, the region. 
But if the government just said, okay, hey, we'll give us the Bitcoin and we'll give you, we don't have to be forced to. It's just a way to sell your Bitcoin to the government and get local effects. People will be happy to do that too. Yeah, but that sounds like you believe, uh, or believe that there will not only be Bitcoin one day. Or well, we don't know. It's so far from now. But well, well, the CBDCs are honestly, CBDCs are coming soon. I honestly believe this whole FTX thing would have blown up sometime, probably with a hack, right? And then it would have happened at the moment the CBDCs were ready. But the mm -hmm. thing blew up a lot earlier than that, right? So CBDCs are coming. I don't know when they're coming, but they are coming. And you see it already in China, you know? I fear that they are coming very soon in African countries because the Chinese will sell the technology to these countries here. And they will happily say, yeah, we love blockchain and CBDCs, but not Bitcoin. Exactly, exactly. And that's the battle we have to fight. And that's why Nigeria is so important, because the Nigerians love Bitcoin. And I'm always calling attention to this election that's happening in Nigeria right now, which I think is the most important election in the world right now. Maybe the most important election in the past, I don't know, 10 years, honestly, or 20, I don't know. Because this is a country of 200 plus million people where the youth are awake, on fire right now. After this NSARS protest, mm -hmm. everyone saw that they can't go back right now. If they don't make a move now, their youth will be wasted. And they are not accepting that. So there are three candidates. There's an old man who's like 87 years old. They're just a continuation of the old crony capitalism corruption. There's another guy who's, again, another one of these old guys. And there's this new guy, Peter Obi who I've been really repping on Twitter against the counsel of my advisors, right? They're just like, be a businessman, play all three sides. But I'm like, no, man, the youth are with this guy. I'm going to back up the youth. I have to. You know, they might kick me out of the country and say, hey, you can't come back to Nigeria anymore. But honestly, if this old man wins, I, I think there could be real problems in the country, and I don't want that to happen. I will help any way I can. And you just have to take some crazy risks sometimes, like fuck the business, fuck all this, like support the people that need help. Let's take a chance on actually making a change. That's the only way things do change. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, wow, yeah. Um, how do we wrap that up now? That was a lot of uh, a great talk, a uh, great conversation. Um, the men in black are not at the door, I hope. <laughs> no, I <laughs> hope yet. so. I don't hope so, too. So what's next for, for Paxful and with, with Bitcoin? Um, yeah, we're going to Kumasi, yeah. But then, after that. Well, I have like, big plans, sister, and I have to say, you know, it's not about any one company. It's about the mission. You know, people say that, but they don't really believe it. Now, I will kill my babies if I have to. <laughs> I'm serious. Companies to me don't mean anything. It's all about the mission and the people that you're helping. And I really believe that an American company can't serve 100%. I don't ever want to lock anyone's funds because some regulator tells me to do this. I want local compliance and regulators. I want to work with these people here because the West is incorrigible. There's none. I've tried my best to do it right. You've never seen a company that's shown such deference to compliance, but compliance has to be local, right? And we have to forge these relationships here, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do that. Every time I meet these people here, I realize that we have everything we need here to build. And honestly, I would love to start a company right here in Africa, the Google of Africa, and show the world just how talented and amazing these people are. They don't need a handout from anyone. Look at what's happening in Nigeria. Companies like Paystack, Floodaway. These guys just got a little bit of money, 
And what did they do with that little? They executed with precision. They saved every cent. The template for success is there. Forget Silicon Valley. They're a bunch of clowns. You've got some real talent here executing on the ground. And I want to put my money where my mouth is and support these local entrepreneurs, hire these developers, and create something that will be a real milestone for the Global South. Like, the, when is the Global South? Like, what's the biggest company that's come out of the Global South? There's some real winners coming out of Nigeria, but we need something to bring all this together. We need a kind of super app for the Global South. We need to be thinking a lot bigger than just replacing banks with wallets. That's bullshit. No one's going to do that. That's a horrible sell. We need to be thinking about onboarding a billion citizens. Not users. I don't even like yeah. that word. People. Citizens. Humans. Yeah. Yes, Humans. citizens. This is a civilization play. People that engage daily, that depend on this to do everything that they need. We need to be offering people things that their civilization, their government should have provided them but haven't. And we need to do it better. And we have every single tool in our... like, We have the internet. We have mobile phones. We have these telcos that have shown us the path forward, so let's stop looking at the old model and battling with the banks and cussing them out and all that, and let's start building for a real future on our terms. That's a bit cryptic, maybe, but... <laughs> but it seems you have some sort of a vision, but you're not there yet. You don't know concrete what you're going, what the next steps are, but maybe that comes into fruition in a, in a few years. Huh? Or our conversation tonight over drinks, sister, when the microphone is not playing. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know what plans you have, but I'm open. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of work to be done, sister, but as long as our heart's in the right place and we're not thinking just about ourselves, we're thinking about a mission, mm. we will get there. Yeah. God has an incredible ability to guide those with open hearts, and my heart is wide open. So I will be guided, I will execute, God willing, and I will have the people behind me to help me. In fact, I've already got them, and that's the beauty of it all. The Great. people are with us, that's all we yeah. need. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank Ray. you. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. Thanks for joining. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to my newsletter at anita.link weekly to get all my updates into your mailbox directly and recommend the Anita Post Show to your friends. If you can afford, please support my work with Bitcoin for Fairness with a donation at anita.link donate. Music, late truth by Audio Hertz. See you soon at the Anita Post Show.